Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. Uh, I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Today we're back with an economist, an entrepreneur, uh, and also someone who is very much at the forefront of pushing uh, very interesting dialogues forward about charter cities uh, and state capacity and how we can imagine a new society. His name is Dr. Mark Lauder. He is the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. Uh, before this, he worked as a lead economist for a fund investing in early stage charter cities, and uh, he received his PhD in economics from George Mason University. Uh, and he was also a former member of the board of directors of Radical Exchange, which is the movement started uh, by, by Professor Glenn Wow, whom we've interviewed uh, around a year ago. Uh, time flies, and, and we really try to have those conversations about those in, interesting frontier ideas in our world today. So uh, thanks so much for joining me uh, remotely, Mark. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me on. Uh, and co-hosting the show with me is my friend Theo. He is a senior studying computer science at Princeton University and the founder of uh, Representable.org, which is a tool that helps uh, nonprofits fight gerrymandering. He and I just hosted a episode with uh, Professor Sam Wang. We talked about gerrymandering and the election. Uh, so thanks so much for helping me as well, Theo. Absolutely. It's a pleasure being here. Uh, so why don't we jump right in, Mark? Uh, I, I asked some of my friends, I asked some of my tech-savvy friends uh, about uh, charter cities, and unfortunately, they didn't know about the concept. I only heard about the concept a couple months ago when Theo talked to me about it. So w would you mind just breaking down the concept for us? I suppose many of our listeners haven't really heard about charter cities. Sure. So a charter city is a new city with a special jurisdiction that allows it to have um, uh, basically authority that's typically reserved for the central government um, and to improve the business environment with that authority. And uh, so the historical examples are like Singapore, Hong Kong, Shenzhen, Dubai. Um, uh, Singapore is a city state, but Dubai, uh, Hong Kong and Shenzhen all exist uh, nested within a greater uh, political unit. And their success basically demonstrates that over two or three generations, it's possible for a city to go from a desert, um, a number of fishing villages uh, in rice paddies, uh, or to basically become a world-class city uh, in, in, in a relatively short amount of time. And um, our idea is basically to take that sort of proof, um, that proof of concept, that idea, and apply it uh, in emerging markets. So every year, there's a, about 80 million new urban residents, um, primarily in Africa and Asia. India, over the next 30 years, will add about 400 million new urban residents. Nigeria, a little bit over 200 million. Uh, China will add a, another 200 million new urban residents. So there's basically this very rapid, uh, very high demand for new urban areas. But most of this urbanization is occurring in countries that do not have good governance, that make it very difficult to register a business, that make it very difficult to invest, to hire people to trade. Um, there are all these sort of barriers to entry um, that prevent a competitive marketplace from forming, which uh, keeps the people impoverished. And that even charter city is basically to take advantage of this rapid urbanization and this need for new housing um, and new uh, urban spaces and combine it with uh, this uh, the challenges in governance that are being faced um, around the global south. So by creating new cities with better governance, you allow uh, people to uh, really reach their full potential, to have better jobs, to increase their productivity, to have uh, better lives for their children, um, while at the same time tackling the, the sort of uh, a huge, tremendous challenge of this this rapidly growing um, urban population, and so that's I guess a short explanation of of, of what charter cities are. 
I see. And and what would you say are the the flaws again for for the audience to to sort of like put it out there in a modern city in a modern urban center um, that necessitate a charter city? Uh, you mentioned some things around uh, governance and uh, expansion, but could you break that down further? Sure. So I would I maybe break it down into two different uh, categories. Uh, first is sort of the underlying phenomenon, the cause. Uh, it's called urbanization without industrialization. Historically, urbanization has been linked to higher incomes, to more growth, to greater economic success. So the classic America story is, right, kid grows up on a farm, moves to a city uh, with nothing but the clothes on his back, makes something of himself, and um, um, becomes better off for it. Uh, that is now um, in emerging markets is not really happening, at least particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, where instead of people moving to cities and becoming more productive, they move to cities and basically remain at comparable levels of productivity. The cities effectively function to distribute rents from natural resource production. So if you're an oil economy or a copper economy or or, or whatever, right, um, a multinational corporation comes in, extracts that resource, and then the rents get dispersed, um, typically through, right, like the politicians first, many um, successful businessmen first, but then it trickles down through the rest of society. And so the, the people in these cities are basically living off of the, the scraps left over from the natural resources instead of becoming productive um, uh, members of society in of, of themselves. And what effectively that means is that the they are unable to, um, because they're not producing, um, and they're producing to a certain extent, but not, not to the same extent that would be sort of ideal, they their productivity doesn't increase. Um, and they're effectively trapped in poverty, uh, trapped in slums. And so, right, that's why you, if you devolve authority to the, the city level, um, then they are able to, one, to respond more effectively to changes on the ground. Right, The city government tends to be more responsive than the national government. So you don't have to go through this large bureaucratic political process. Um, and second, right, you might get the labor laws wrong in the first attempt. Uh, you can work as hard as you can, but you might not get 100% correct. And so because of that, it, it makes it much more easy to right, like adjust to any mistakes you made. And also as conditions on the ground grow and as they evolve, you're able to adjust um, the, the, the legal environment to those con changing conditions without sort of going through this, this, this bureaucratic process um, that often sort of stimulates reform at the national level. So you mentioned uh, the United States earlier and now uh, Shenzhen, and a lot of these examples of uh, four charter cities have been focused on Shenzhen, the special economic zones in, in, in China, and even Abu Dhabi and, and Dubai. Um, however, China was behind its potential in, in the 80s when it started thinking about setting up these economic areas. Do you think you can get a similar effect of, of a charter city in a country like the United States or uh, even in, the West, in Western Europe? Um, or are charter cities only good for developing markets? So uh, China was unique in several respects. I mean, they were very impoverished, uh, but also they basically had um, forcibly limited urbanization. So there's a pent up demand for uh, urban areas. Um, and they had the benefit of uh, in Shenzhen being quite close to Hong Kong, which was a relatively developed market with a lot of uh, personal and familial connections to uh, Shenzhen and Guangdong. Um, we are probably never going to see a success story uh, to, of the same magnitude as, as Shenzhen ever again. Uh, within five years after being declared a special economic zone, Shenzhen had um, um, uh, the tallest building in China. The first year it was a special economic zone. It had over 50% of all foreign direct investment in China. Um, so even in other emerging markets, uh, it's probably not going to hit that level of, of success. Um, are charter cities possible in sort of high income countries? Um, conceivably, I think there's two challenges. 
One is urbanization rates. It's much easier to build a new city when there is a rapidly urbanizing population, right? There's a there's a demand for new urban areas, and you can meet that demand. You know, it doesn't have to be a charter city per se. It can just be a, a master plan city, and a lot of those are being built around the world right now. Um, the U.S., for example, is 80% urbanized. Europe is like 76% urbanized. There is um, um, population in the U.S. is rising, but birth rates are below replacement. Birth rates in most of Europe are below replacement. Um, there is not a large demand for um, new urban areas. The second challenge is right charter cities, um, in addition to being new cities, also have this uh, special jurisdictional aspect that allows them to improve the business environment. The U.S. and Europe tend to be relatively well governed. Um, so if you're thinking about um, putting a good legal system in a country in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, for example, you can conceive of over a 40-year time horizon, basically increasing the, the, the per capita income of the residents of that city by a factor of 10, if not more. Um, in the U.S., right, like if you're very optimistic about your ability to right, create a good governance system, you're talking about, I don't know, like a 30, 50 percent increase um, in per capita income, which is just a lot less than a order of magnitude. Uh, that being said, we have seen, uh, obviously, the sort of failures of the regulatory state uh, recently with the response to the coronavirus, uh, as well as the failure of uh, law and order with the, the sort of police brutality that has been on display. And then in sort of particular uh, subregions. Uh, for example, California has effectively banned uh, new buildings. So there is a sort of regulatory arbitrage play that could be made in terms of building a city within an hour of San Francisco that just is a bunch of 80-story high-rises um, to lower the, the, the cost of housing. So you talk a lot about greenfield cities that are built from scratch to create a new form of government that brings hope to discourage people. And it seems that these cities could actually do do, do very well in emerging markets, as you said. However, even these new cities surely cannot escape the influence of neighboring governments and successful cities. How do you expect people to carry forward with political norms, uh, carry forward political norms from established cities? Uh, where do you seek to counteract this gravitation towards the traditional? And where do you seek to deviate from the traditional and actually push forward these reforms that are much needed? Sure. So the idea is, right, you need to work closely with the host country. You need to um, have their buy-in. You can't, this, this, this can't be a, like, uh, I'm just going to go build a city by myself and nobody can tell me what to do. So you need the government to pass a law that says within this designated area, um, there is a special jurisdiction and that special jurisdiction has rights over X, Y, Z. Um, you probably want to align yourself with the national plan. So most governments have like five and 30 year national plans where it's like we want to provide X number, like increase our housing stock by X number. And we need to provide like Y number of new infrastructure and we want to create Z number of jobs, et cetera. And we want to focus on ABC industries. And so basically come to them and say, hey, right, like these are your goals. We can help you meet your goals. All we need is um, this land and the ability to create a special jurisdiction. Um, we will have governance rights over these core things. Um, we will coordinate with you on these other things um, and to work within that system. Um, and I think you can, right, like it's sort of this balancing act because you need enough um, autonomy and freedom to be able to make these radical improvements. But at the same time, you can't threaten the sovereignty of the country and you can't sort of undermine um, the role of the government in, in sort of meeting the needs of the people. Um, and the, the way we think about it is right, if you're starting with a legal and administrative blank slate, and you do have a relatively wide range of, of action that you can take. 
And if you are creating a lot of jobs, if you have investors from the host country, if you have the politicians who sort of make it their national platform to attract investment, uh, foreign direct investment, um, it, I think it's possible to effectively um, uh, walk that line. And so far in the projects that we're working with on the ground, um, we're seeing quite positive uh, traction in, in, the, in the engagement from the host country as well as the, the level of interest. Uh, Mark, would you mind telling us a little bit more about the ongoing projects in Charter Cities that you, that you are hoping to work on right now and also how you founded Charter Cities Institute? We would love to just get a more tangible sense of uh, what's the ongoing progress of this vision. Sure. So uh, we are currently working on, I guess, uh, four projects um, at, at the Charter Cities Institute. We are working with one in Zambia. It is a new city called Nkwashi. Uh, being built on 3,100 acres for 100,000 residents outside of Lusaka, the capital of Zambia. It's about 40 minutes or so from the central business district. The first residents should be moving in this year. We signed a memorandum of understanding with the Zambia Development Agency um, and to help them improve their special economic zone law. Uh, but we signed that in February and then COVID hit and Zambia is also in the middle of a debt crisis. So uh, the, the follow-up has been a little bit less than we had hoped at this stage. Uh, we are working with two projects in Nigeria. Um, one is called Inyimba Economic City. They've acquired 95 square kilometers in Abia State. Um, we helped them draft their regulations, which will be submitted to the Nigerian Export Processing Zone Authority. Um, they were supposed to be submitted two months ago, but COVID hit. So they should be submitted in the coming month or so. Um, and then if that goes well, we will uh, most likely help them implement the, uh, those regulations and start building this new um, administrative structure. Uh, third, um, we're working with a project called Talent City in Nigeria. It is uh, being built on a former special economic zone uh, called Tanapa in Cross River State. Uh, the uh, lead is, his name is uh, Ayino Lua Aboyeji. Um, e, he co-founded Andela and Flutterwave, two of the better known African um, startups. And uh, they are looking to basically form a deal with the state government to have um, right over this uh, special economic zone and turn it into a, um, uh, a tech hub because Lagos um, has some challenges with it. So he believes that he can attract some of the Nigerian tech community to a, a sort of nice livable uh, community. It's about an hour flight from Lagos. Then we have another project in um, in Central America that we've just uh, started uh, working with. So, so what, is, what do those cities really urgently need right now? Do they need from you the more uh, to bring international connections from finance to tech, or do they need Charter City Institutes advising on how to draft the economic laws and new regulations? And, and what are some of the new experiments, laws that you're trying to implement uh, in those decentralized governing structures this time? So uh, they need uh, a number of things and, and different projects need different things. Um, in Honduras and within Yim Economic City, we are helping primarily with the governance. Um, so we are uh, working with the team to help um, um, uh, right, uh, create uh, laws to, to regulations, administrative procedures, et cetera. Uh, in, in Zambia, uh, they don't have any degree of um, um, legal authority yet. So we're trying to work with the central government to help create the legal infrastructure to then devolve authority to the uh, city government. In Talent City in uh, Nigeria, we are working 
to uh, basically help introduce to investors, to help sort of think about the project at a high level, to strategize about next steps um, and, and do that. Uh, the Charter City space is, is quite young. It's quite early. So we're, we're wearing multiple hats, um, right? We act sort of as a like consulting firm and also a little bit as a um, um, think tank uh, because they're just, it, it, it's, it's quite small. So you basically have to uh, uh, figure everything out. There's not a lot of specialization at this point, uh, but that specialization is increasing. And within probably two, three, four years, right there, we're going to see um, um, a little bit more sort of dedicated uh, firms in terms of things like negotiating with the government in terms of drafting regulations, in terms of um, fundraising, in terms of attracting an anchor tenant, uh, things like that. But but for now, it's, it's kind of all hands on deck. Um, let's, let's figure it out. I see. So when, when you work with these um, all these actors, do you usually partner with private uh, groups or do you us- usually go in and, and talk directly with the, with the local government there? For example, your your institute claims to deal mostly with private actors because they move quicker than bureaucratic institutions. Um, a lot of your approach focuses on bringing stakeholders together to develop charter cities. Who are these stakeholders? What is the process of working with them to uh, like? And what are the consequences of a city created by private actors for the people uh, instead of a city created by the people in, in, in the places where you work with private actors directly? Sure. So private actors tend to be uh, quicker, more responsive to, I think, the needs of the people. Um, if you visit, I mean, you can see in, in cities today, I'm not sure you could call most American cities today responsive to the needs of the people. Um, uh, and our, our idea is to try to get quick and early wins. Um, there's been a lot of people talking about charter cities. There's been a lot of wasted energy in this space over the last decade or so. And so we are trying to uh, focus where we believe we can get quick, uh, good traction. And I believe that is most with the private sector. I have friends, for example, who are trying to work on refugee cities who have much better connections with me, who have struggled to really generate a lot of um, interest, despite the sort of obviousness, at least in my opinion, of the idea. Um, Governments uh, tend to be quite bureaucratic and can be slow moving. And um, us as a nonprofit, the governments don't want nonprofits. The governments want investors. So if you are a for-profit company that says, all right, I will invest, I will build this if you give me X, Y, and Z, then the government is much more likely to say no versus us. It's like, we have a good idea. You pass this law, then a developer might come in and build X, Y, and Z. It's just a very different um, um, conversation. As to the implications of uh, sort of, I guess, I, I wouldn't call it uh, privately led cities versus like the people. It's 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 because the people don't build cities. There are different specific institutions that build cities. Um, and so if you look at right government cities, one of the most prominent examples of a government built city is Brasilia, which is famously like anti-human. Um, it, it, the urban planning it was sort of built during the peak of, of high modernism. Uh, there's a quote from the lead architect on it who said, like, don't you worry that this is hasn't been really beneficial for the people who live there. And he says, well, let's look at it in like a thousand years and see how people think, because his goal was basically to create like a monument to the times, uh, kind of like the, the the pyramids, where people might look back at it in a thousand years and say these were really cool buildings. But like, I don't know, it's basically anti-human. Um, and that was built by the government, um, which is sometimes, I think, wrongly associated with the people. Uh, private sector actors, because they are um, dependent on profit and loss, tend to be much more responsive to um, the, the needs of uh, um, 
uh, the people on the ground. So if they're unable to attract um, residents, if they're unable to attract investors, they're unable to make it a comfortable place to live, nobody is going to live there. And so, um, I mean, as we're seeing right now, again, in the U.S., not to belabor this point, but right, like it's not the private security guards that are going out and, and feeding protesters. It is the public police. The public police are also ignoring the looters and, and sort of committing all of these like we're not actually like, right. I mean, it's kind of funny. Like, people are protesting police brutality, and the police response is to just brutalize the the protesters. Uh, and I think that is probably much less likely to happen in a privately led city because you don't want to beat your customers. That's a good way to lose customers. Um, uh, but ultimately, I mean, I, I am open to alternative, right? Like types of projects. If somebody wants to get a government group together and try to build one, go for it. If somebody wants to build a communist city, I will recommend against it. But if it, it works and is successful, right, like I will admit I'm wrong. Um, so charter cities don't have to be this kind of like, I don't know, like neoliberal market oriented idea. I suspect that's going to be the one that is ends up being successful. Um, but right, like anybody can experiment with a different type of governance system that they think might work better. And I encourage them to, so we can actually sort of have proof of concept and see how people choose to live. And um, the, the more successful projects will attract more people and the successful ones will, will go belly up and, and, and fall apart. So before this podcast, before we started recording, you, you were talking to us about your uh, side projects and uh, you mentioned Hong Kong and, and the current events there. Can you tell us more about what other ways uh, you've, you've been, what other projects you've been working on in order to advance this idea of charter cities, especially given the current geopolitical context? Sure. Um, also, can I just ask you both to kill your video feeds? Because you, you, you are breaking up when you talk. Um, and maybe the lack of video feed will help that a little bit. Um, so, yeah, recently I've engaged a uh, group from uh, Hong Kong, the Victoria Harbor group. It's a set of, of volunteers who basically got together last October and during the height of the um, anti-extradition uh, protest um, and started thinking about uh, alternative solutions. And they basically thought, okay, why don't we build a new city in a free and democratic country that um, Hong Kongers can migrate to if they decide that the situation in Hong Kong uh, becomes unbearable. Um, and the last few weeks have sort of, uh, I've been working with them about six weeks. I've been working with them in, in my private capacity because um, the Charter Cities Institute is built to work in emerging markets um, as well as to focus on governance. And the Hong Kongers are focused on high income countries and um, like probably have a lot to teach us about uh, governance um, and also probably policing and protesting too. Um, and so they're looking, uh, have, have engaged with the government of Ireland as well as uh, several other countries that are not public yet um, and are looking basically to acquire land, to uh, build a new city. The idea is to be uh, 50% uh, Hong Kongers and 50% um, from residents and citizens of the host country. Uh, and a lot of Hong Kongers are probably going to move to places like New York, London, and Vancouver. But a lot of Hong Kongers might not have the relationships or the, the financial resources to be able to move to those uh, tier one cities and continue their way of life. And the idea behind the Victoria Harbor Group, a large percentage of the company will be owned by a foundation, which will then help um, subsidize migration, job training programs, et cetera, so that Hong Kongers who might not be um, sort of wealthy and well-connected will still be allowed to have the opportunity to um, um, move somewhere to continue their life in uh, a free and democratic country. 
Um, and effectively, the, the sort of two challenges that I think charter cities solve um, are one, the challenge of governance, and then two, the challenge of uh, urban planning. And so we're basically in the final stage of urbanization for humanity. Over the next sort of 80 years or so, um, I mean, there have been historical patterns of urbanization, for example, in the uh, late Middle Ages, in the Baltic region, particularly in Germany, there was a high rate of urbanization. In the U.S. in the 19th century, there was very high urbanization. China, over the last 40 years, very high rates of urbanization. And this is sort of the, the last phase. Um, once countries are developed, industrialized, urbanization hits about 80 percent of total population. And then there right, like, aren't many new urban residents and birth rates tend to fall to about replacement, oftentimes below replacement in developed nations. So there isn't a need for a new urban spaces. Um, so getting this right is very important because basically if you, uh, there, there's a lot of path dependencies built in to new urban spaces. It's very hard to change the grid of a city. It's very hard to um, change governance structures in a city. Uh, I mean, obviously in the U.S. right now with all the protests and riots, we're seeing the, the sort of um, challenges even in uh, uh, black-led cities, black-majority cities, the police are still acting abusively, which is likely in part due to this basically historical legacy um, before there was black control of the city that the police just right have this institutional legacy of that um, abuse to a certain extent. Um, and so we're seeing the challenges in right changing the these, these governance norms um, over time as well as the physical infrastructure. And so more specifically, what this means in um, emerging markets context, I went over the challenges with governance a little bit, but the infrastructure is also a major challenge. Most um, cities in Africa, for example, um, haven't really done real like planning in terms of uh, 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 planning for the, the 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 new the new residents. So uh, to take an example, Lagos. Um, I visited Lagos about a year ago, and we went to visit the former governor of um, Cross River State, uh, who lives on one of the nicest streets in Lagos, uh, one of the wealthiest streets. And his apartment was extremely nice, uh, right? Like, um, like I don't know, his living room was twice as big as my one-bedroom apartment. Uh, but the street itself had potholes that were about a foot deep. So the question is, why does the wealthiest street in Lagos have potholes that are a foot deep? Um, and the answer is um, because that makes it more difficult for the kidnappers to drive away. Uh, and so that sort of illustrates some of the underlying uh, challenges uh, that unfortunately are still present in these um, emerging markets, combined with the fact that most uh, uh, cities, um, particularly in Africa, there's very few cities that have effective public transportation. The public spaces are relatively small. The road networks are relatively weak. And cities are valuable to the extent that they are um, um, labor markets. Uh, if people are able to effectively trade, effectively interact with a broader population, they're able to better specialize. There is this sort of uh, uh, ideas that emerge from the random interaction of people, from the sort of conversations on the sidewalks that Jane Jacobs talk about, talks about. But that requires um, relatively effective uh, public transportation networks, um, or even not public transportation networks, just transportation networks in general that are often lacking from um, uh, cities in, in low-income countries. Uh, just to clarify a little bit further about the idea of the charter city, because you were mentioning how uh, we try to solve the problem of urbanization without industrialization and try to bring forth a new governance structure. And it seems that the idea of charter city is not just some kind of special economic zone controlled by some centralized government. There has to be new governance structures. There has to be kind of a decentralized way of living and governing. Uh, and, and that seems to be a, a slightly more radical or more innovative idea. So would you mind just helping us further differentiating uh, charter city from just the economic zone. So there are, I think, I think you summarized accurately some of the differences between special economic zones and uh, charter cities. 
So special economic zones, we tend to think of as sort of being defined in several ways. One, they tend to be geographically bounded in a relatively small area. So it might be a few hundred acres to build an industrial park or something like that. Second, they tend to be focused on a single industry. So it might be textile manufacturing or electronics manufacturing. Sometimes they have multiple industries, but it, it tends not to be particularly broad. There's very rarely any uh, residential. Uh, third, they tend to have a predefined set of rules. So the federal government might say within this area, um, you have lower taxes and you might have a one-stop shop for business registry, but you can't really change that after it's passed by the, the, the central government. And we think of charter cities as being different on, on those three margins. So one, they're much bigger. Uh, Shenzhen, which is a special economic zone, um, was actually 320 square kilometers. Right? It's called a special economic zone, but it's much more like a charter city. It was a, a huge amount of area. And so we tend to engage with projects that are sort of 10 square kilometers um, um, as, as a minimum size with preferably much larger. One of the projects we're working with in Nigeria is 95 square kilometers. Um, second, uh, is this idea of having it be a city. Right? A city is really the smallest unit that can generate sustained economic development. And so a uh, special economic zone might be good in attracting foreign investment and creating jobs, but then what needs to scale up to the next stage of level of production, right? You basically need a bunch more action from the central government. And the entire problem that charter cities are trying to solve is that the central government might not always be reliable in terms of helping to identify the next steps for economic development and take the actions necessary to um, sort of incubate those steps. Uh, and then the third reason, um, is why charter cities are important are different from special economic zones is the devolution of authority. It's not saying here's a predefined set of laws and regulations that now apply to the city. It is saying we are giving the city government this authority to have um, um, make decisions uh, on laws and regulations that are typically reserved for the national government. So if you take labor law, it's not saying this is what labor law is in the charter city. It is saying the charter city government now has the decision making right uh, to figure out what labor law should be and to change it in the future. Uh, if it so desires. So let's discuss the criticism of charter cities. Um, a lot of people have mentioned Hong Kong, Macau, the special economic zones, uh, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, but all these places are in, in countries where the central government is actually quite strong and, and has the ability to align stakeholders really quickly. Um, is this something that's in incredibly important to, to charter cities to function? Uh, do we need a central, uh, central government for them to work? Uh, that's that's very strong and has a, an already set up bureaucracy, um, or is this just an accident? The fact that these these places have been developed so far in in places with strong uh, central governments. Uh, no, I think the centralized decision making tends to make decision making easier and faster. So it's not an accident. Um, I don't think that necessarily precludes the possibility of charter cities that don't have effective centralized decision making, um, but it definitely makes the challenges um, more difficult. Uh, that being said, I, I would push back a little bit on the claim that uh, Shenzhen had centralized effective decision making in 1980. Um, I mean, obviously, the Communist Party did have a high degree of power, but at the same time, it was a very poor country, right? Like their ability to effectively exercise that power is probably not what their ability is to exercise that uh, power today. Um, uh, part of the reason there was the, the sort of uh, uh, cultural revolution is that Mao was afraid that, right, like sort of the, 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 there were forces against him, so he right, whipped up this general fervor of the students to um, um, minimize the forces kind of within the party uh, against him. And you don't do that if you're operating from a, a, a sort of central effective uh, decision-making apparatus. Um, so 
uh, yeah, in, in, in sort of open democratic societies, it is going to be more difficult to get all of the, the stakeholders together and to get buy-in for a project like a charter city. Um, but um, I think that's that sort of, it, it doesn't make that, it just makes it a bigger challenge given the benefits of charter cities. I think it's, it's a challenge that is um, worth uh, fighting for. That makes sense. And a particularly interesting example of charter cities or a country trying to set up a charter city in the past decade is actually Honduras. Um, and they received a lot of attention for trying to develop this, uh, but at the same time, they're also held up as an example of sort of a failed uh, attempt to create a charter cities. So for example, they asked Paul Romer, who actually was one of the early proponents of this idea um, to help them set it up, but he actually left the project because uh, he realized that the transparency commission he was supposed to be part of wouldn't even exist. Uh, and on top of that, there are a lot of concerns there that these charter city zones would do a lot to entrench the current elite while limiting the freedoms of locals and taking away from their ability to share the economic fruits of the, of, of the charter cities. What are your thoughts on the project there? Was, was it a, an, an, an example of, of, of gone wrong? What are, you, what are you thinking? Sure. So, I mean, there, there's a lot that happened in Honduras. I lived in Honduras for six months in 2014. Um, so basically, the story is, right, like Paul Romer, uh, went down there, I believe in 2010, uh, after he gave his TED talk, maybe 2011. Um, and there were a group of uh, sort of Hondurans who had wanted to implement similar reforms for a long time and saw Paul Romer as a vehicle to help sort of get legitimacy behind those reforms. Um, Romer was brought down. There was uh, like a little bit of friction between Romer and the government that ended up um, um, sort of blowing up a little bit. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled the law unconstitutional, half the Supreme Court was fired, they passed a new law, the Supreme Court ruled the new law constitutional, and um, I think it generally illustrates just the challenges of charter cities, because you're trying to walk this institutional line. You're trying to uh, put in good institutions in a country that doesn't have them, um, and that is necessarily challenging, because if the country already had good institutions, uh, charter cities probably would not be really necessary. Um, uh, so, more recently, uh, there was a project announced in Honduras like three or four weeks ago called Prospera. It is being built on Rotan. They have approvals. Um, they are selling uh, sort of, um, I don't know if they're selling land or like rights to build a house or a house itself. I don't think the houses are built yet, but I suspect they'll start construction on them soon. Um, uh, Rotan's a, a tropical island off the coast of Honduras with about 60,000 people. Um, and so it probably has the most sort of uh, devolved authority from the central government of almost any jurisdiction in the world with a, a few hand, a handful of exceptions, for example, the Dubai International Financial Center. Um, and I, I actually don't really know how much um, autonomy Shenzhen has today, but in sort of the, the 1980s, they had a, a huge amount. Uh, so it, 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 Honduras, I think, shows definitely some of the challenges um, um, with charter cities, uh, but also shows how there is, to a certain extent, kind of at least proof of concept on a small scale that this is possible to create these new jurisdictions. Um, it, it, obviously, a lot of time needs to be seen before it can be judged uh, how successful this program is. But right, like given that charter cities are 30 year plus projects, 50 year projects, you need to start taking these incremental steps um, towards the end to uh, uh, have that um, sort of potential levels of success. And so the example of Honduras also sort of shows from what you've explained that there was a lot of friction between different parts of the government 
Uh, some people wanted this to go through. Maybe some people didn't want it as much because they actually benefited from the status quo. Um, it, it, does this create a vicious cycle where the countries that need charter cities the most uh, are actually unable to, to create them because uh, some people actually benefit a lot from, from the status quo in those, in those, uh, in those countries? Yeah, that, that, that's, 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 that, that's what charter cities are trying to overcome, right? Like, there aren't reforms in a lot of countries, um, not because people don't know what reforms should be implemented, but because the status quo benefits, uh, because, because the elite tend to benefit from the status quo. So, uh, right, in, in um, there might be business interests, there might be uh, individuals, there might be for political reasons, there might be a host of reasons, but creating new economic centers threatens political elites. So if you have a successful city um, when everybody else is still remaining impoverished, right, or if you make reforms that create a more open market, then the elite groups can be threatened and then they will want to shut down those reforms. And we're seeing that in the US to a certain extent with the rise of Silicon Valley as sort of a tech hub, as well as to a little bit um, sort of media and finance as well. And a lot of the pushback I think from uh, media organizations and from the, the East Coast elite can be interpreted as they feel that their power center is being encroached on. So they come up with a handful of rationalizations to push back. That's not to say that their sort of critiques are wrong or bad, but it should be looked at at least in part as a power struggle. Um, and uh, similarly that like all human society is, is subject to those power struggles. The advantage of charter cities is because they are focused on areas where nobody lives, um, where there are not a lot of special interests, uh, it allows to bypass some of these political struggles and not have them be as intense as they would otherwise be uh, to get very deep reforms. So that's why Shenzhen was um, reformed and not Shanghai, right? Shanghai is the traditional commercial capital of China, but, but Shenzhen was reformed because uh, the Communist Party didn't want to reform Shanghai because they would empower all of the sort of former capitalists, their, their political opponents, while doing it in Shenzhen, which was effectively a backwater, it, 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 it made sure that they could control the process um, to a certain extent. And no matter where you are, you're going to have to sort of play those political games. And they're going to be different in, um, every country. And I'd just like to, I think, briefly go back to the point you made previously, uh, like, will, you didn't sort of explicitly phrase it like this, but um, will uh, charter cities be just enclaves for like the elite and the wealthy? And the answer is certainly some of them will be. Um, if you look at new city developments around the world, a lot of them are being built for upper income residents or upper middle income residents. Nobody's figured out how to hit the price point for lower income residents. But just if you think about market size, right, most of the new urban residents are lower income. So Toyota sells a lot more cars than Mercedes. Toyota has a larger market share than Mercedes. So if you are a purely motivated by financial returns, then you should be trying to figure out how to create a model that has the lowest possible price point to allow the most people in. And so we're actually sort of working on a financial model uh, to develop that. Uh, we're working on a master plan that will try to hit a price point of $1,500 annually um, um, to allow a city to be accessible by people in those uh, income spectrums um, and to at least like get the conversation started on how to uh, lower those price points and, 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 and open the market up uh, for charter cities to make them benefit everybody and not just a, a small select class of people. Just a little bit deeper on the your point about political struggle and power struggle. Uh, doesn't that kind of imply that there has to be somewhat of an ideolo ideology behind any kind of economic success in the sense that 
you know, Thomas Piketty recently wrote this book, you know, Capital and Ideology, and he was making the point that all kinds of inequalities are engendered due to political ideological reasons, and, and we have to recognize that economic development is always, always uh, political ideological. So are we saying that charter cities should kind of uh, evolve on its own in a decentralized way from this new population where the ide ideology isn't currently influenced by the status quo, or do you really think we should uh, start from kind of a new revolution grounds up way of, of building this ideology? I, I would love to go a little bit deeper on, on how you think of those issues. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it, I think, I wouldn't call it like a new ideology. And I think you need to be very entrenched within the host country. You need to benefit the host country. You should try to sort of spread the success of the charter city as, as, as wide as possible. And it should not be ideological. It should be practical. It should not be like, this is my pure libertarian vision, or this is my pure, right, like whatever vision it is. Um, it should be, it should be pragmatic. It, it needs to make decisions that, that allow it to be successful. Um, and I, I, I have a, you know, my, my interpretation of, I think, uh, I have a somewhat uh, deterministic view of ideology, where ideology tends to be determined by um, broadly the, the sort of conditions on the ground, though obviously there is a sort of large variance and large um, other factors of chance. Um, um, uh, but I think there is also important to note a sort of portion of the left, and I don't know Piketty particularly well, so I don't want to sort of claim that this is his view, but there is definitely a portion of the left which is sort of anti-progress. Um, that just doesn't want to build things, that doesn't want um, new ideas, that doesn't want uh, um, uh, sort of right, the, the creation of wealth. Um, and this can be seen in, uh, to extent, the sort of uh, that um, some people who are sort of, right, like uh, a lot of the discussions about global warming ignore the, the role that nuclear can play in global warming. And, and so, right, uh, Germany destroyed a, a decommissioned and destroyed a former nuclear plant. Now they're building a coal plant because they need power and that's the most cost-effective way to do it. And so uh, when I sometimes talk about charter cities, there are people who sort of react with this, I don't know, like, uh, uh, idea that, like, why, why do we need to sort of build them this sort of like, I don't know, embracing um, like primitivism to a certain extent. When if you actually have visited like rural poverty in emerging markets, it's really, really horrific. <laughs> and these people risk their lives to to get better lives. I mean, in Nigeria, they risk their lives to try to travel to Europe to be treated as second class citizens just to 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 like make a little bit more money because that matters a lot when you need to buy um, sort of right like malarial pills for your children. Uh, and so I think to to embrace this idea of progress, to embrace this idea of like we can build a better future for people, uh, is is quite important. And and if there is an ideology, I would say it's, it's sort of that broadly, but on a sort of more like granular level, it needs to be very pragmatic. It needs to be very focused on like what can actually be accomplished in terms of 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 the outcomes and next steps. I, I totally agree with you, but just a very quick follow up on that front. Don't you think? Uh, you're also going in with certain economic assumptions. For example, you might really believe in free markets where you, you don't really trust the regulatory state or, or uh, how would you respond to that? Sure, I mean, yeah, I have certain assumptions of how markets work, of what will attract investment. And those assumptions and those beliefs are going to be, uh, um, I wouldn't say they're like ideological, that's why I try to say they're pragmatic. Like what I, we are trying to do is create legal systems that attract investment and that make successful cities. And so there is a very easy like feedback mechanism and test, right? We say that if you pass these laws, then you will get 
like the city will be more successful and we will have a reasonable idea of how successful it will be and how successful it won't be um, if a different path is taken. And therefore there is a, a very uh, clear, I think, feedback loop between the decisions made on the regulatory and governance system and the success of the city. And so if our beliefs and understanding of uh, governance and of economics is incorrect, and in fact, a more open market does not lead to more wealth generation, then we will figure that out um, within probably five years as the projects will not attract more investment and they will not be as successful as we uh, anticipated. And then we will revise our beliefs um, to better understand what uh, steps need to be taken in order for the projects to be successful. Uh, got it. I really wish that we could have had time to go a little bit deeper into some of those uh, economic theory. I'm, I'm an econ guy after all. So it, it's super fascinating to hear you bring in those ideas. But uh, I suppose at the very end, we would just have to ask you, because the name of our show is Policy Punchline, what would be your punchline here for, for our show? Uh, build more charter cities. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind of the, the, the future, the, the vision, I suppose. Well, well, thanks so much for joining us today, Mark. And before you go, how can people learn more about your work, about you personally, and how can they support this idea? Sure, so uh, we've got a website, chartercitiesinstitute.org. We have a Twitter account, uh, cci.city. We have a podcast, the Charter Cities Podcast. It's on all the major uh, streaming services. We have a newsletter. You can sign up on our website. We have a Facebook page. Um, and if you want to get involved, shoot me an email. We are pretty accessible. Um, and uh, we are also always looking for donations. So if you have any Princeton alums who are listening to this, who have made a lot of money in, I don't know, a hedge fund or whatever, and you <laughs> support, um, we are a good cause. Uh, of course. Well, thank you again, uh, Mark. I really appreciate you joining us with this conversation today. Thank you so much. Uh, great. Thanks for having me. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. And, and before I go, so Theo, thanks so much for always helping me out as well. Thank, thank you so much for having me, Tiger. This was a pleasure. Well, that was our interview with Dr. Mark, Mark Lauder. He is the founder and executive director of Charter Cities Institute, as well as the host of the Charter Cities podcast. You should really go f give him a follow, a listen to his podcast before listening to ours, uh, and, and follow us on policypunchline.com and uh, rate and review us on all the streaming platforms. Thanks so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.